Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Power and kindness rarely go together. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful the most powerful being in the universe is also exceedingly compassionate. In fact, when he revealed himself to Moses, compassion was the first attribute he declared about himself. We also see the outworking of God's compassion in the laws he provided Israel in the Torah, especially the provisions he made for those who were vulnerable or suffering. These serve as examples for how we should think about those in difficult life circumstances. Scripture calls us to imitate our Father as dear children. So let's be a compassionate people who genuinely fear for those in dire straits and who seek to do our part to alleviate their suffering. Here now is episode 447, God is Compassionate. When I was about 17 years old, I was a new driver and I was on Route 9 in my mother's minivan uh, and I was wearing a, a baseball hat and I, I, I looked down to adjust the, the radio. And you know, when you're wearing a hat, you, don't, you can't really see this part right here because it's blocked. So I'm down there messing around with the radio and I look up and suddenly, without any warning at all, the vehicle in front of me had come to a total stop. What I do? I slammed on the brakes. I slammed on the brakes as hard as I could, and uh, the minivan shuddered and swerved a little bit and then crashed into the car in front of me, bumper to bumper. And then it was because of a stoplight. So there was, the, the stoplight had turned. I didn't see it go yellow or anything. So once the stoplight was done, all the cars started moving, and the, the vehicle in front of me pulled off the road. And I kept driving. And in all honesty, I wasn't trying to do anything. I just didn't know that was protocol. I figured, all right, whoever this is, they're going on their way. So I kept driving. And about a quarter mile down the road, this fuming middle-aged lady pulls up in her minivan next to my minivan, and she's gesturing to me and saying a lot of words that... (laughs) You know, I couldn't really hear, but I got, the, I got the picture. It was pull over. So I pulled over. I think that was at Latham Farms where I pulled over. And, and we got out of the vehicles, and she's like, you can't, you just hit and run. You can't do that. That's, and I'm like, look, I'm sorry. I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> you know, it's like my first time. I've never been in an accident before. You know, I went to that stupid five-hour course that DMV makes you take. They didn't cover this. You know, when my mom was teaching me how to drive, she didn't say, well, in case you rear end somebody, make sure to pull over and exchange your shirt. You know, she's like, she said, don't hit people, right? So I was, I was clueless. And this, and this lady, as soon as she saw that I was a teenage person, that I was young, that I was basically clueless, she totally changed. She totally changed. She went from, I'm going to pr- prosecute you to the furthest extent of the law to, uh, let's take a look at the damage. And we just walked around, and there was no damage. You know, I was probably only going about 5 or 10 by the time I actually hit her. 
my thinking at that time, honestly, I had not a single thought about, oh, what if my insurance goes up? Didn't think about that at all. I didn't have any worries about the police, really, because, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a big thing and nobody got hurt. I had one great fear, though. Those two in the back, my parents. And, I, and I'm not, I mean, if this lady had reported it, eventually it would have to get back to my parents, which is why this is probably the first time they're hearing about it now. Um, but there was no, I want to reiterate, there was no damage on the minivan. Or if there was, it was very minimal. You know, that lady, she, she had compassion on me. She showed me compassion, and that's what we're talking about today, how God is compassionate. Can you think of a time in your life when somebody could have really stuck it to you and they let you go? You know, that's happened to me a number of times in my life. Let's talk about compassion here and look at Exodus chapter 22. It says in verse 21, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is not a word we use a lot, so I thought maybe we could look at some verses that address it. This is Exodus 22, 21. It says, you shall not wrong a sojourner. Why? Because you, Israelites, you once lived in a foreign land. You once were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Abraham, when he's going to bury his wife, he says to the people there, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Moses. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. If you know about Moses, Moses had been raised in Egypt, and then he had fled to Midian, which was a foreign land. To Egypt, and he was sojourning in a foreign land, and he had his first son, so he called his first son Sojourner. That's what the Ger of Gershom means. That's part of his name. Elimelech and Naomi, that would be Ruth in the book of Ruth, her father-in-law and her mother-in-law. Uh, it says, in the days, they're Israelites, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So these Israelites were sojourners living in a foreign land. Why were they in a foreign land? Why did they go to Moab? Because the, the falafel was better? No, it says there was a famine. You see that there? This is, this is why people do things in life, right? There's war. There's a famine. Something goes bad with your situation back home whatever it is, and then you, you move somewhere else. I mean, in this case, it was a famine. Or in Leviticus 24:22, it says, You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord, or Yahweh, your God. So this is talking about non-Israelites. You can see the contrast here is between the sojourner and the native. The native would be somebody that's born there. The sojourner would be a foreigner living there. And so once again in Exodus, it says in verse 21, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Sojourners are vulnerable people. They don't have their family. They don't have their connections. They might not know the language. 
They might not know the customs. I mean, if you're living in ancient Israel, there are some serious customs you need to know about. Or else you're going to be offending people. I mean, you can't eat certain foods. You can't plant certain kinds of crops together. Right? I mean, it's, it's a comprehensive cultural system that God had set up with his people. And so God says in verse 21, the first thing he singles out is these people. And he says, look, don't mess with them. Right? That's what oppressed means. Don't mess with them. Verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Now, in a patriarchal society, you need to have a man. Now, the Bible doesn't establish a patriarchal society. It works within it. That's what was already there. And God says, all right, within this system, this is how we're going to do things. And so we put safeguards in place in the law for women, in particular for the widow who had lost her husband, and for the fatherless, the person who had lost his or her father. So in a patriarchal society, you need a father or you need a husband. And so if you didn't have them, there were some, there were some issues you had to face and what God's saying is, if you are facing one of these people that's vulnerable to the society because they lost their husband or their father, that you wouldn't mistreat that person. Verse 23, if you do mistreat them, this, this is the part that really gets my attention. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Whew! That's a strong statement. Do you think God cares about vulnerable people? Do you think He cares about the widow and the orphan? I mean, this is about as strong as it gets. Look, if you, if you mistreat them, I'm going to kill your husband. I'm going to kill your father. I'm going kill, to kill you. And then your wife will be a widow. I mean, this is just, this is just the strong... You don't see language like this typically in the books of the law. Instead, you see fines. You see uh, other kinds of punishment. Uh, in one case, a guy... Uh, I think it was a guy who accused his wife of adultery and it, or, or of not being a virgin. And then it turned out she was. He would get whipped. And then never be allowed to divorce her the rest of his days. Uh, you know, those are the kinds of... They don't usually say, God is going to kill you. I mean, this is really unusual, this law here. It's almost like God has a soft spot for people that are vulnerable or needy. It says in Psalm 68, verse 4, Sing to God, sing praises to His name, lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. His name is Yahweh. Exult before Him. Father of the fatherless and protector of of widows is God in his holy habitation. What about that, huh? How about that for a name or a title of God? Father of the fatherless, protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. I just love this. Uh, look at verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. We got a new category here. So we talked about sojourners, we talked about widows, we talked about fatherless. Let's talk about people who need to borrow money. In other words, poor people. He says, no charging them interest. You're not allowed to do it. If it's one of your, one of your own people, you can't, you're just not allowed to charge them interest. And there are different levels of poverty in our society and also in their society, right? But at the bottom 
of the poverty scale in their culture in that, in that time, in that place, would be somebody who has nothing at all to give as a pledge or as a guarantee for the loan. No collateral. So all they would have to give would be, they wore two kinds of clothing, the tunic and the cloak. The tunic is like your regular clothes, and then the cloak was like a robe or a long coat that they would have in case it got cold, and that would double as their blanket at night when they slept. And if you were at a place where the only thing you have in collateral to give for a loan was your cloak, you were at the bottom. That's like, by definition, where the bottom is. You don't have a blanket at night, <laughs> you know? And so that's what he's dealing with here in this next verse. Verse 26, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. Why? Because that's his blanket to sleep in. <laughs> for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am what? God is compassionate. God is compassionate. You know what the definition of compassion is? Is an awareness of somebody else's suffering. That's one side of it. Paired with a desire to alleviate the suffering. Okay, if, you just, if you're just feeling somebody else's pain, that's empathy. That's a, that's a good thing. But compassion is a step further that says, and I want to do something about it. Uh, and so God says that he is compassionate, and that is his motivator in verse 27 here, for why you can't rip off poor people. It's really interesting because like God's compassion, you know, that's, that's part of his inner character. You know what I mean? It, in fact, when God came and revealed himself to Moses and showed him his glory, he said, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, the very first of the eight attributes that he lists out there, the very first is compassionate. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in truth, right? There's a lot of good stuff in there, right? But the very first thing he says about himself, you ask God, who are you? Other than his name and that he's God, the very first thing about his character he reveals is compassionate. Or some translations say merciful. Same idea. And so that's who our God is. And what is he compassionate? Compassion is not the sort of thing that can exist by itself, you can't sit in a room by yourself and say, I just feel so compassionate right now. It's just not how compassion works. I mean, you could be truthful. You could be honest if you're by yourself. You could be a lot of things if you're by yourself. You could be nice to yourself, I guess. But if you want to be compassionate, you have to be around somebody that's going through suffering. By definition, it's an awareness, a sympathy for somebody's distress, and then a desire to do something to alleviate it. You need somebody to be in distress in order for you to, be, to, to express compassion towards somebody. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. It reminds me of another driving incident I had uh, where I dealt with the legal system this time. I used to go to RPI and it was just the hardest thing I ever did. You know, it was just so brutal. I was studying engineering and uh, Ruby was there in those days and the uh, ID office and a number of other believers. Uh, Lynn Lewis used to be there in uh, Kenyatta. And uh, Sandy's here. She's still there at RPI. And uh, we had a whole bunch of people working there. And uh, Kathy Michelson was there. And uh, Anna was there. Remember her? I mean, it's just, just unbelievable how many people were, were there. So, um, but anyhow, it was a terrible place to be a student. And... <laughs> 
My life was so maxed out. My life was so maxed out that I had to get a weekly planner, a paper one, old-fashioned. I mean, this is, this is a while ago. And I had to put in every hour, every waking hour for the entire week. I had to schedule. Jerry, Jerry's nodding his head. He knows what I'm talking about. I had to, I'm, not, I'm not joking. I'm not exaggerating. Sometimes it was every half hour. It depends on what we're talking about, which day, what assignment, Okay. But, I, you know, I was working a little job on the weekends, and, you know, I had, I had school. And, and there would be times where I would stay at school till 2, sometimes 3 or 4 in the morning. One time, I never even went home, just like, hey, I'm still here, right? And some of you have been through that, been through the all-nighter. A lot of times, people put in all-nighters because they slack off, and then the assignments do, and they're like, oh, I got to This wasn't that. This was just like keeping up with the workload, Okay planning way ahead and still pulling all-nighters. So anyhow, it was like 3 in the morning, and I'm leaving school, and I ha- I'm out of gas. So I go to the gas station on Hoosick. I-, I gas up the car, and I pull out of the gas station. As soon as I pull out of the gas station, look, it's those blue lights flashing right behind me, right? Police cars pulling me over. I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm trying to go home. I'm exhausted. I got a test tomorrow. Almost ran out of gas. And so the cop uh, pulls me over, and he says, do you know why I pulled you over? I said, I said officer, I have no, I, I don't know. I was, I was studying. I was working really hard. You know, I slipped that in there, right? <laughs> I'm a good boy. Uh, and he said, uh, he said, your inspection is expired. I said, oh, I, I don't know. I'm so busy. I can't really keep up with this. He's like, all right, well, it shouldn't be a big deal. Let me, let me go back and, and just check on things. He goes back, and he gets in his vehicle, and he checks on things, and, uh, you know, I had a speeding ticket that I just never paid <laughs> the year before. So I had a suspended license. I had a suspended, I was, I was driving illegally. My mom remembers this, I think, maybe vaguely. Just so you know, I looked it up today. This, uh, the penalty for driving with a suspended license in the state of New York is that well, first of all, it has a title, a special title. It's called Aggravated Unlicensed Operation. That's, that's the term for what I was doing. Apparently, I was aggravating the system. It says, this is a misdemeanor offense punishable by a fine of 200 to $500, a mandatory surcharge. You know that's going to be, that's where they get you. And then possible imprisonment up to 30 days. That's, that's the law. That, that was my crime, and that was the law. So the, the police officer comes up, and he says, you've got to come with me. So he puts the, uh, the handcuffs on me. He puts me in the back of the vehicle. He drives me down to the police station. Now it's 4 in the morning, okay, 3.30, whatever. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm arrested. So... <clears throat> He starts asking me all his questions. I answer his questions. I don't remember if that's the time they fingerprint me. I was already in the system for something else. We don't need to go there. <laughs> but uh, but uh, he asked me all these questions and everything else. We get to the finally to the end of it, and he says to me, look, you've got two choices. You can either spend the night here with me and see a judge in the morning, or you can go home and be back in like three hours, four hours. You'll be back first thing for the, for the judge. I said, I, I'm just going to... I'm just going to go home. So I made a call, and I called a friend, the kind of friend that's up at 4 in the morning anyhow, and uh, he drove me home. 
And I came clean to my mom the next day. I said, Mom, this bad thing happened. I need you to drive me. And so she brought me the next morning. I stand before the judge, and the judge says to me, he says to me, how long do you need to deal with this? How long do you need to deal with this? You've got to get your situation together. You're a college student. You're all stressed out. You know, you, how long do you need to deal? I said, six months. We good. You know, get me to the summer, get me to the summertime or four months, whatever it was. And he said, all right, fine. You've got however many months, and then you can deal with it. And just like that, I went from a situation where my whole life was so carefully balanced that if one little piece fell, the whole thing <laughs> shattered to a million pieces to one judge showing me compassion. And suddenly I had my life back. I could take my stupid test that same day, that same morning that I was studying for, and I could start doing the right thing and, and fixing my license and everything else, and I could never do that again. You hear that, son? My two sons are here. If you, if you don't pay a speeding ticket, they will take away your license. And then you won't be guaranteed to see the nice judge like I did. But that one act of compassion enabled my life to continue. And I was able to graduate on time from school as a result of that. You know what would happen to my life if he put me in jail for 30 days? In the middle of a semester? That would sink the ship. I bet even one day would have sunk the ship at that point in my life. He showed me compassion. And, uh, you know, college students, they need compassion. They're, they are in a terrible place in life. They're working the hardest, maybe the hardest they'll ever work, and they're paying for it. <laughs> it's terrible, right? And they usually come out in all kinds of debt as well. I mean, these people need compassion. We're going to get to other people groups that need compassion too, but I just want to throw that out for the college people. Deuteronomy 24, verse 10 says, When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort... You shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. I love this part. I love this part. This is so dignifying. This is so dignifying. In fact, look at verse 7. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you may make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. It doesn't matter what your status is in, in, in God's society in ancient Israel there. It doesn't matter how high up you get. You don't get to go into somebody's house and rifle through all this stuff and be like, oh, this looks like it's valuable. I'll take this. No, no, you stand outside. Let them bring it out to you. Uh, you have to respect it. Verse 12, and if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. <laughs> Apparently this was a problem. You shall restore him the, his pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. That's, that's really interesting, the end of verse 13 there. What it says is how you treat poor people, God notices it, and if you treat them well, if you're kind to them, it says, it is righteousness for you before Yahweh your God. Whoa. It's like God takes it personally how we treat people that are suffering in some way or another. You shouldn't oppress a hired worker, verse 14, who is poor and needy. Uh, verse 15, you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. God's listening to the prayers of those who are suffering. Verse 19 is one of the coolest laws in the whole Bible. Uh, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf of the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. 
When you beat your olive trees, so like when the trees are ripe, olive trees are ripe, you actually beat them with a stick to get the olives to drop. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. You can't beat them a second time. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. You could go pick it once, but you're not allowed to do it over and over. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So they weren't allowed to maximize profits. It was just simply against the law. You know, you, you collect what you can. You send, the, you send the workers through or you go through yourself. You, you collect all your grain, all your fruit or vegetables, whatever it is. But then after that, you've got you, you to leave it. Because what if there are poor people or those people who are widowed or fatherless and they need, they need to eat? This is how he set up to, to deal with it. It's a really an interesting situation. And we see that in the book of Ruth. We see a lot of this in the book of Ruth, a lot of these things in action, where Ruth goes to the field of a man named Boaz. So you have the regular workers, and they're, they're taking all the ears of corn or, or whatever it is in the field, and, or maybe it was early, I don't remember. But, uh, and then Ruth and, and the other poor folks are, are just kind of walking behind the regular workers, and anything that they miss, they pick up and they take with them. And you also see it with Jesus. Jesus would walk through the fields, and he'd take some grain, Remember that with his disciples? Jesus did that too. So this was, this was a standard part of their society. What motivated it? God is compassionate. God is compassionate to people who don't have their stuff together. God is compassionate to people who are hungry. God is compassionate to those who are in need. And there's no indication here that it's their own fault so tough. You know, it's just like these people are suffering. Let's, let's see what we can do to alleviate their suffering. Look at uh, chapter 25. I might have hinted at this. This is one of the laws God set in place for the widow. So if your husband dies, what do you do? I mean, you're in a lot of trouble. In a patriarchal society, which pretty much all ancient societies were, men inherit property. So what are you going to do then? I mean, you can see a little exception, uh, a couple places in in the Bible to this, where people are compassionate. But generally speaking, men inherited the property. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. That's the plan, is that if a man would die, a husband would die, then that wife would then be married to his brother... And we know that from the book of Ruth that like, if the brother wasn't available, then it would be like some other more distant relative. And if the, none of those relatives were available, you know, they keep like, moving it out uh, until you get to however many places removed from the original brother there. But the point is, it's the family's responsibility to take care of this woman, not only her, but her future, so that when she finally does have a son, he gets the inheritance that was due to his stepfather, really, in this case, the, the wife's original husband, so that that name would live on, so that property would stay within that, uh, that household. So, in other words, in other patriarchal societies, the property would just go to the family of the deceased man. In Israel, it stayed with the woman, because it would be her son that would inherit it. You see what I mean? 
So it's an interesting law, but there's always an out to these things. Like, what if the guy doesn't want to marry her? Or what if she doesn't want to marry him? Verse 7, this is where it gets really interesting, by the way. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Tell on him. Tell on him to the government. The government in the village is the elders who sit out at the gate to the city. It says in verse 8, here's protocol. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now look, we don't live in an honor-shame culture. We live in a very capitalistic, driven society. In other words, we care about money. Their, their concern wasn't so much money, it was honor. This is absolutely the worst nightmare. To get stuck with this kind of name that would live off on generation after generation that you have now embarrassed your entire family and that now in the village you're known as the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> now why all this elaborate law? Why is it? Because God is compassionate. God is compassionate to that woman. God is compassionate so, and he knows how people are wired. He knows how we're wired. You know, what if, what if, it's, what if it said all right, well, then half of your wages for the rest of your life are going to be garnished and given to this woman. That would be like our culture's equivalent, where instead of honor, you're going to take money. That would, that would guarantee that people take care of the widow. You see what he's doing here? Look at chapter 26. There's another, another one here. Verse 12. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Then you shall say before Yahweh your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all of your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. And so what this is talking about is actually financially supporting people that are in need in their society. And he also adds into this, if you look at verse 12, he adds in one new category, the Levite. All priests are Levites, right? But there, but there are more Levites than, than priests. Not every Levite would be a priest. But all Levites were to be supported so that they could take care of the service of God, which in their time involved killing animals and offering them sacrifices to God, right? That was their system. The idea is that there was also this financial system set up to take care of the ministers and the people in these categories that were in need so that everything could run. And it says in verse 13, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house. In other words, the money that this person owed to God so that these people could be taken care of, he calls it the sacred portion. I don't think it's sacred in the sense that like this money is like specially clean or some sacred currency or something. Sacred, I think, just means set aside. It's, it's set aside for this other purpose. And so this was part of their system. Now let's go to Zechariah chapter 7. 
with laws like this, with laws like this, surely ancient Israel must have been a, a just and merciful country. Surely they must have taken care of the, the Levite, taken care of the sojourner, taken care of the widow, taken care of the fatherless. With this many different rules that we've just read out, this would be a great society to live in if you were in a situation like that, right? So you would think. Actually, they were terrible. So what does that tell you? You can have all the best laws, and you can still be terrible. Look at Zechariah chapter 7, if you could find Zechariah. It's in the Z's. I'm just kidding. It's towards the end of the Old Testament there. What happened? Look at Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. That's what God wants. He wants justice and He wants kindness and mercy. Verse 10, do not oppress. And so, by the way, just so you give a little timeline understanding here, what we were reading before in Exodus and Deuteronomy would have been hundreds and hundreds of years before Zechariah. Zechariah is living after the whole entire kingdom had been taken away to a foreign land, and now they're back. So Zechariah is the very end of this whole uh, saga. And look at verse 10. It sounds the same, right? It's like, didn't we just read that? <laughs> Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. It's like a kid is going, la, 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 la. Can't hear you. That's what God says about His people. Century after century after century, His people would not listen to Him. Verse 11, they refused to pay attention and turned the stubborn shoulder that they may not, and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard lest they should bear, hear the law and the words that Yahweh of hosts has sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from Yahweh of hosts, from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear. You catch that? God called, how does God call to His people? Through His prophets. Prophet Isaiah. What's Isaiah chapter 1? You're ripping off the poor. What's wrong with you? Come on! You know, he really, it's like Isaiah chapter 1, you read it sometimes, it's like he grabs Israel and he's just like, come on, stupid! God says in Isaiah 1, I hate your music. I hate your worship. Because you're ripping off the poor. There's nothing wrong with the notes they're playing. And you see these other prophets, you see Jeremiah, same thing. Ezekiel, what are you guys doing? This is not how we're supposed to live. This is not how God wants us to live. And, and he preaches to his people. He preaches and he preaches. God preaches through all these prophets. And then it says in verse 13, I called, as I called, they would not hear. So then when bad times came, they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them, verse 14, with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. God so cared about these vulnerable people that He sent prophets. I mean, it's not the only thing God cares about. I don't want you to get, get this out of proportion to other things. He really cares about faithfulness to Him as well. I mean, that's probably, you have a lot more verses on that, and idolatry. 
But this is another aspect of what God really cares about and that he preaches through these prophets over and over and over again is be just, be kind to each other, be merciful. Yeah, I know he owes you collateral for the loan, but if you take his blanket, he's going to be cold at night. <laughs> and they're like, I don't care. I'm taking his blanket because he needs to learn. He's got to pay me back. And they used predatory economic practices. They joined farm to farm, and they had big farms. And then there were lots more poor people. And over time, the whole society degenerated. And God said, that's it. And I don't, I don't, this is a mystery to me. I like, why did he make it, let it go this long and didn't stop it earlier? Why not have it go another century? I don't know. This, that's up to him. At a certain point, however many hundred years it was, he says, all right, that's it. You're done. And he brought it in another nation, and they decimated Israel. Decimated. And carried away the survivors to a foreign land where they lived as sojourners themselves. It was like a second Egypt for them. For 70 years. And then at the end of that 70 years, he brings them back. And that's Zechariah. He's prophesying. He says, guys, FYI, for your information, this is what happened last time. Any questions? <laughs> right? I mean, like, you got to treat people that are vulnerable, you, tr you treat them well. you got to have compassion. Because if you're not compassionate to them, God is going to be angry at you. And you don't want to mess with God's anger. We saw that a few weeks ago when we saw the ten plagues. You know, you're going to have frogs in your hair. You want frogs in your hair? How about lice? Yeah, so you don't want to mess with them. Now, I'm not going to get into government programs here in our particularities in our system, you know, we, we've got problems, all right? I'm not, I'm not really talking about that. What I'm talking about is you, your heart. What's your heart towards vulnerable people? Is it diamond hard? You see that? That's pretty hard, right? Diamond is one of the hardest, hardest things in, in the whole world, right? I think they use them as, uh, for, as drills, right? They use Diamonds is drills. I mean, that's, that's a really hard thing. That's how, that's how their heart was. I was thinking about our situation today and how, you know, maybe we're tempted to say, well if, she, well, if she got a second job, then she wouldn't be poor. She just needs to work harder. Or maybe we say, well, if he stayed in his native country, then he wouldn't be such a drain on our country's resources. Or maybe we say, nobody should hire him. He's done time. You commit the crime, you do the time. Nobody's, he, deserve, he deserves not to be hired. What, what, are, what are these examples of? A hard heart. A heart that sees somebody that's suffering, sees somebody that's in need, sees somebody that is, is in a situation and says, you know what, it's really your own fault. Maybe it is. Maybe it is their fault. That's not the point. The point is, we're supposed to still be compassionate. The point is, that God is compassionate, right? That's, that's the big point. Or we could say, oh, she smells. I'm not letting her in my car. I'm not giving her a ride. Or I'm not, I'm not giving this homeless person a place to stay in my house. I mean, they could rob me. What is that? That's a story we tell ourselves to harden our hearts to somebody's suffering. And I'm not saying don't just open your door to anything and, and be foolish. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that we need to have a heart of compassion, you know, we heard that uh, story that Larry told 
I'll see Larry today, but he told, was that last week he told that story about uh, how he was homeless and how he's sleeping on a bench and how there were a couple of ladies in the apartment complex that, that saw him out there and they said, oh man, that guy looks like he's hungry. And they brought him food. How many years was that? Three years. Three years they brought him food. You don't think that kindness made an impact on this man? Or what about uh, mental illness? We see somebody that has mental illness and we say, well, I'm not a trained professional. What am I supposed to do? Have compassion. <laughs> That's what you're supposed to do. Why should we have compassion? Why should we care about people that are suffering? Because God is compassionate. God is compassionate and he wants us to be compassionate. You know, Jesus said, be merciful even as your father is merciful. And that's a, a word, that word merciful there, means being concerned about another's unfortunate state or misery, merciful, compassionate, and it's also used of God. It's not just, mercy is not just saying, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. No, it, in, in this particular case, this word means more than that. It means that you're concerned about somebody's situation. And we have lots of vulnerable people in our society today, don't we? Obviously, our society is completely different than theirs in like almost every way imaginable. But we have lots of vulnerable people. I mentioned college students. Uh, what about single parents? Incarcerated people? Ex-incarcerated people? What about legal immigrants? Or refugees? You know what refugees are? They're immigrants that are here because they can't go home. What about drug addicts? If you're into drugs, let me tell you something, you're vulnerable. Uh, or prostitutes, or the elderly, or the homeless, the mentally ill, the physically disabled. What about people that don't have health insurance, and so they get sick, they can't deal with it. Those who are in debt, significant amounts of debt. Now you're, you're paying that, paying that, paying that, one thing goes wrong, guess what? You're in trouble. Or the poor, or children, or how about those in the womb? In this country, those people are very vulnerable. Uh, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. We're supposed to be like God is. Now there are obviously limitations to that, but I think when it comes to compassion, we need to, we need to cultivate for ourselves the heart that God has. So I want to mention to you, one, two, three, four, five practical options for you to think about as far as what you can do today about this. Uh, the first one is the Congo Children's Fund. The Congo Children's Fund is something that our church sponsors in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And uh, I'm just going to read what is written here. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, many of the children in the churches we are helping cannot afford to attend school. Our child sponsorship program was established to address this urgent need by gaining a basic education, a child is better able to learn the scriptures, develop his or her potential in the body of Christ, and build a foundation for providing for their future families later in life. If you want to give to the Congo Fund, sponsor a child, that's something that's available for you to do. Here's another one. The Salvation Army. The Salvation Army is an organization in this area that is specifically the one we're working with is in Albany, and it's an international movement, an evangelical part of the universal Christian church. Its message is based on the Bible. Did you know that? 
That's pretty cool. Its ministry is motivated by the love of God. Its mission is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to meet human needs in His name without discrimination. Men and women who have lost everything due to substance abuse or other social and spiritual handicaps can find hope in our programs. You can, you can get involved at the Salvation Army. You can, you can volunteer. You can ring a stupid bell. And you know what? It brings in money, and it, it does good, and it helps people that are in need of compassion. Uh, here's another one. Just, these are just all local, local things here. Uh, the regional food banks just down the road over here, they exist to alleviate hunger and to prevent food waste. Uh, we work at the regional food bank. They work for, toward this mission by ensuring that all products available for donation reach the food bank are distributed judiciously to our member agencies by practicing responsible stewardship and by actively participating in the community to increase awareness of hunger and poverty. So, I mean, these are all different organizations that are trying to actually do something. And these are also not government organizations. Our church is not a government organization. Neither is the Salvation Army or the regional food bank. Here's another one that uh, Matthew's been involved with down in Albany there. U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants. In the neighborhoods across Albany, New York, we open doors for uprooted people helping the world's most vulnerable. There's that word rebuild their lives. We are part of a nationwide network that breaks through social, cultural, and economic barriers so previously interrupted lives can flourish. The first welcome begins with navigating American culture, which that can't be easy, right? Laying solid foundations for a fresh start, making essential community connections to successfully integrate into our community. And then uh, last but not least, uh, Bethany Christian Services, which I just last week discovered is in Latham. This is amazing adoption place. When children are in need of a family, we respond. In the U.S., we protect vulnerable children. See that? That's in their mission statement. Vulnerable children through essential services, including pregnancy counseling, foster care, emergency care, and adoption. We believe family is the essential human care structure, and we work to provide every child the support, safety, and connection they deserve. I went down. They have an office on uh, Route 2 here. Uh, just, just near the, uh, the, just past the circle, heading towards Water of Leap. Uh, it's just a tiny little office, just one lady. You know, it's just kind of running the whole show up here. It's a satellite of a much bigger organization that's in other places of the country. But she's the only one that's here doing this job. And uh, you know what they say to uh, women who are pregnant and they don't want the baby? You know what they say? They say, it doesn't matter what the reason is. It doesn't matter the condition of the baby. We have Christian, and this is an explicitly Christian organization. We have Christians signed up that will take that baby. We don't care if that baby has a drug addiction. We'll take them. We don't care if that baby has Down syndrome. We'll take her. We don't care if that baby's only going to live for a week. We have people, Christians, in this country already signed up that say, I will care for that baby. I will love that baby till that baby dies, and we'll give that baby a funeral. You know, that's compassion. That's compassion. And, and so these are, these are real organizations, you know, and I'm not telling you you've got to do one or the other. I'm just saying, look, if, if, you, if you feel your heart stirred, you know, you've you got to do something about it. And it, the best thing you can do is get involved in someone's life. But if you don't have anyone in your world that's suffering in, in these kinds of ways, then get involved in one of, one of these organizations that is uh, involved in their lives. Well, that brings this message to a close. What did you think? Come on over to restitudio.org, find episode 447, God is Compassionate, and leave your feedback there on the website. 
Now, obviously, the institutions that I shared about may not be applicable to your own situation, uh, but I do encourage you to find some way to show compassion, to be an imitator of God in this area. We got some feedback on our last episode on YouTube. Uh, By the way, I am posting what I can on YouTube. Uh, Not that this is primarily a YouTube show. It's not. It's first first and foremost audio, but I know that some people, for whatever reason, prefer video to audio, and uh, so I have been posting the last five or so interviews on YouTube as well, totally unedited, so if you want the raw version of the recent interviews that I've done with Aaron Schellenberger, with Theophilus Josiah, or Lori Jane, Uh, Do check those out if you're interested on the Restitutio YouTube channel, and uh, sometimes those are a little easier to share with people, although I, in all honesty, think the audio was way better because I edit it like crazy to make everything as tight and quality sounding as possible to honor your time and to make everybody sound great. (laughs) But anyhow, I just wanted to let you know about that on the YouTube of our last episode, episode three in our series with Aaron Schellenberger dealing with objections, specifically Bart Ehrman's rejections to the resurrection. Someone named Ben wrote in saying, apart from some discussion of Boltman's work on demythologization of the New Testament, I'm not sure the context of Bart Ehrman's historical analysis can fully be appreciated. Ehrman is not simply undermining the historicity of the Bible, but rather trying to build a methodology of discernment by which to say some aspects of the Bible, from an agnostic historical perspective, truly can be attested to, and thus Ehrman is also holding the line against the mythicists. I grew up in Protestant churches that insisted there is only one right way to read the Bible as a history book, but eventually that world fell apart for me, just as it did for Bart Ehrman. I personally can no longer view the Bible simply as a history book, and thus I need some method by which to discern the different layers of Scripture. Interestingly, I'm someone who actually believes in miracles and healing and the power of the anointing to set folks free, though I'm someone who thinks the New Covenant is actually the introduction of a new hermeneutic by which the Word is transfigured from water to wine. Meanwhile, for a story to be parable-like or mythic doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it's not literal. Is this not the very point Jesus attempts to make to Nicodemus, who is stuck in a place of literal madness? Not only was Paul introducing a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, but so too the ministry of Jesus centered on parable. As such, he did not speak anything to them without a parable. Christian hermeneutics were never grounded exclusively in biblical literalism, until Protestants insisted on such. And thus, to write off such concerns for myth and parable and spiritual interpretation and some kind of liberal dismissal of miracles just feels incredibly dishonest in terms of the larger historical context of Christianity. If we were truly committed to biblical literalism, I personally think we would judge Paul's ministry as false. And if the Bible is only true if taken as literal and historical, then why is parable such an important part of Jesus' ministry? Whew, that was a lengthy comment, Ben. Thanks for contributing and saying your piece here. So what Ben is taking up is, uh, he put the word liberal in scare quotes, so I I won't use that word for him, 
Uh, but uh, classically speaking, historically speaking, what he's defending here, and you know, he even mentioned Boltman, is liberal Protestantism. Or the nicer way to say it, I guess, uh, if you don't like the L word, is mainline Protestantism. Today, we typically call these people progressive Christians. This is a group of Christians that has been shrinking and shrinking hugely, in the United States at least, as uh, secularism has grown and conservative or Bible-believing Christianity, especially Pentecostal, uh, but also Catholicism is growing by leaps and bounds in the United States. The, the middle is, has been falling out, and for some time as well, uh, at least 50 years. And so uh, scholars, sociologists puzzle over, well, why is this intellectually sophisticated version of Christianity falling away? And, uh, you know, there's, there are different hypotheses on that. Uh, but this is, this is a point of view is in many ways indistinguishable methodologically from the atheists, from the agnostics, from those who attack Christianity as unreliable and untrue. This is really what the question Ben is raising is all about, is the question of methodology. This episode, our last episode together, uh, was on historiography, which is the enterprise of doing history. And so if you're approaching the Gospels as historical sources, then assuming that there is no inspiration, assuming that God is not behind Scripture, then you, you really do have to slice and dice them into their component pieces and argue for authenticity based on some sort of criteria. Now, Ben, very interestingly taking up the progressive cause here, is going to say, oh, hey, I don't have any problem with miracles. I don't have any problem with God's existence or God doing things. Well, historically, Ben, that's not been the case for liberal Protestants or mainliners. Uh, because of the Enlightenment, and in fact, the driving force for so many of their mythologizing moves or demythologizing moves was the Enlightenment and this whole doubt about miracles and the supernatural, basically just labeling all this as superstition. So the question becomes, well, all right, so you don't have any issue from a worldview perspective on the existence of miracles and so forth. Okay, that's great. I applaud you for that. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to trust the Gospels as being reliable. You want to say that they are spiritual or parables or, what, allegories? I think in that case, you are, you're, you're staking out a position where, on the one hand, your criteria of authenticity would include miracles. And that's, that's not really the position that Aaron Schellenberger and I were interacting with. That's not standard among those who have been part of the quest for the historical Jesus over the centuries. So, look, we're not trying to marginalize uh, your approach. We were in instead just interacting with the biggest and clearest, and, you know, I've got, I don't know, 20 historical Jesus books on my shelf that I've read uh, over the last 20 years that all approach it from this particular angle, like you're not allowed to talk about miracles, you're not allowed to talk about inspiration. So really the question I would have for you, Ben, if you are even listening to this, which I hope you are, but the question I, I would have for somebody like Ben is, uh, what are your criteria of authenticity, and how, do you, how can you have any confidence at all 
that those criteria are in fact reliable for judging any kind of work of history. Uh, because if you're if you're going to deny that God inspired Scripture, and that it is purely a human do- a collection of human documents, uh, then y- you do need to develop some criteria, and whatever criteria you develop has to begin from a point of profound doubt about the legitimacy of Scripture. In other words, you have to basically set a bar for how much you distrust the Gospels, right? So what, what is it going to take? Is it going to take two of them agreeing on something? Uh, does it also have to be something that would be l- embarrassing to later Christianity for you to consider it as legitimate? And now we're right back to the criteria of authenticity that these non-believing, non-anti-miracles scholars have been using for over a century now, since the turn of the 20th century. Now we're well into the 21st century. And it has produced all these different Jesuses. I would recommend that if any of you are curious about the problems with the various quests for the historical Jesus, that you would uh, take a look at Luke Timothy Johnson's book, The Real Jesus, where he goes through the Jesus Seminar and a number of others, uh, as well as Lee Strobel's got a book on this, uh, which you know sadly is injected with all kinds of um, evangelical theology, uh, moving way beyond the history, into um, into theology as well. Uh, but he does make some some great points in there. In there. Uh, but anyhow, back to Luke Timothy Johnson's book. His book uh, goes through, and essentially his point is a methodological point, which is what Ben is raising here. And here's uh, Luke Timothy Johnson's point. If all of these, and they really are world-class scholars, uh, a lot of them that have worked on Jesus over the last century, if these world-class scholars, very intelligent people who approach it from a non-believing point of view, are all using the same methodology, why? Why? Please explain. Why do they all disagree with the final Jesus? Why do you have a cynic sage Jesus? Why do you have a proto-feminist Jesus? Why do you have an apocalyptic prophet Jesus? Why are they all so different from each other if, in fact, the methodology is legitimate? Well, as it turns out, and this is, this is sort of like the original criticism of questers for the historical Jesus, what people do when they do this kind of approach, for better or for worse, is they, uh, they end up looking down a well and seeing their own reflection at the bottom of the well. In other words, in their historical reconstruction, Jesus just ends up looking like them, or like how they want him to look. There is a subjectiveness to it that is always troubling. And so, hey, you know, if you don't believe in Scripture, you don't believe God inspired scripture, then yeah, you are sort of left to your own devices to develop criteria by which you can judge what is legit and what did not actually happen. And if that's the case, then that's that's what you're doing. But for those of us who believe in inspiration, who believe that God was behind the New Testament, not just the Old Testament, but also the New Testament, then we're much more interested in reading the text as scripture. And that means history but it doesn't just mean history. It also means the parables. It also means the theology, especially the Gospel of John. There's a lot of theology in the Gospel of John as far as the four Gospels are concerned. And our impulse is always going to be, as insiders who treat the Gospels as Scripture, our impulse is always going to be, how do we work this all together? And yet we put boundaries on that impulse. We don't just generate a harmony and say, well, that's it, QED. 
Uh, that's what Tatian did, and it, it you know it had some circulation. I think that was in the second century, but it, the church always kept all four gospels. And in all honesty, that I think that was a great move for the church to keep all four instead of just like eliminating three and saying this is the one we're going to go with, or generating a fifth and incorporating parts of the others. Uh, you know, this way we have what they actually wrote, which I think is incredibly powerful, the honesty uh, to that. So I have been interacting with this progressive approach a little bit, and uh, I have some real concerns having spent a lot of time among progressive Christians and people who approach Scripture from a scientific or non-Christian perspective. Uh, In fact, I, I wrote to Mike Winger. I don't know if any of you follow Mike Winger. I think he does some really great work. He recently had done a whole episode on progressive Christianity, and I had already, even before receiving this comment, I had already reached out to his team, his staff, and just asked for permission uh, for us to play that out. So that's what's coming for next week. And I think it will be very eye-opening for all of you to hear where this path leads, how people think about themselves on their way there, and talking also about some of these movements that we've seen, those of us who have been around for and following this sort of stuff for the last 20 years, like whatever happened to the emergent Christian movement, whatever, whatever happened to Rob Bell and some of these other leaders that, you know, at one point in the early 2000s were, you know, filling, he, he actually used to fill the, like a mall food court <laughs> for his church, like a defunct mall. Uh, why do they face such serious decline? And this is this seems to be the bane of progressive Christianity. Yes, it does take a lot of people in, and it does become popular, but then it fizzles out, and and where are the churches? Where are the communities? Where are the denominations? Where are the, where's the movement today? Uh, they It seems like it does uh, shrink. Now, uh, just to be clear, I am not talking about politics. I'm not talking about Democrats and Republicans. I stay away from that, and I'm profoundly ambiguous on that subject myself, uh, seeing major problems on both sides. I'm not talking about politics at all. When I say progressive, I'm not talking about abortion. I'm not talking about immigration, right? I'm talking about scripture. Do you recognize scripture as God breathed? And is God in some way behind it? I'm, I'm not going to take a position on one one particular view of inspiration, but if you are going to say, if the Bible disagrees with me, the Bible wins. I'm going to label you as a conservative with respect to biblical inspiration. If you are somebody who's going to say, well, if I disagree with the Bible, then the Bible needs to change, or the Bible is obviously out of touch, and we need to find some method of interpretation that's going to fix it. If you're coming from that point of view, that is the progressive Christian point of view that I'm, I'm staking out here. So just to clarify, I wish we had different words to talk about these things, because I know some of you are really concerned about politics, and that's just, it's just not what this podcast is about, and that's not what I'm going to be addressing, and that's not what Mike Winger addresses either. So take that or leave it. Look forward to playing that out next week, and I think it's going to be really enlightening for all of you. Thanks for listening in to the end here. If you're interested in more thoughts on how to benefit from liberal scholarship and evangelical scholarship and how we can discern a Jesus, a historical Jesus, between those two mountains, take a look at episode 428, uh, which was an old presentation 
that I had done a theology paper. I think it was actually my first theological paper, to be honest. Uh, but I just posted it in, uh, in January here and talk about editing. Whew. Young Sean Finnegan needed a lot of editing. That's all I'm going to say. But uh, thankfully, you don't have to suffer through that. Episode 428, Looking for the Historical Jesus Between Evangelical and Liberal Scholarship. Take a look at that if you are interested in following up more on this. We'll see you next week. If you'd like to support us, you can do that at restitutio.org. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.